0: It would be very hard to put a micro-dosed mint under the same communication style as your strain-specific live resin connoisseur product. And so if we have a new concept for a new consumer, then we put that in a different brand. If it is a different brand promise and a different value proposition to the consumer, then we split that off.
1: This is The dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents.
2: What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me as always is Kellen Finney. And this week we've got a very special guest, founder of Kiva Convections, Christy Palmer. Christy, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today?
0: I'm so great. Thank you so much for having me.
2: I'm excited to dive in and talk edibles today. Kellen, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing really well, Brian. Thanks for asking. I'm really excited to talk to Chrissy, really excited to kind of help the West Coast, again, bring the knowledge to the East Coast. So how, how are you, Brian?
2: Yes, yes, that is very true. And I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to sit with Chrissy because uh, Kiva is one of my uh, daily consumption products. So I am very, very fortunate to have that and kind of dive into some of the specifics today, some of the branding, some of the product differences. So Chrissy, for our listeners that aren't familiar with you can you give a little background about yourself and how you got into the cannabis space.
0: Yep, totally. So I uh, grew up in the Bay Area, California. Cannabis in my life was very like um, normalized. I had friends, boyfriends, family members, like who were kind of very accepting of the <laughs> of the cannabis market back then. And so, uh, yeah, you know, I think what drew uh, my husband, Scott and I, um, we met in photography school, then we moved back to the Bay Area to start photography businesses. The economy was like, you know, tanking. This is 2007. It's like, you know, it's pretty awful. And uh, (laughs) we're doing whatever we can to make ends meet, pick up odd jobs and stuff. And so Scott had the idea that, oh, why don't we start? Why don't we start growing weed in our backyard, in our garden shed so that it wasn't just to make ends meet. It was so that we could buy a yacht and um, sail around the world. I haven't done that yet. I'm still sitting here at home in my office, <laughs> but working on it. So yeah, and that was, you know, our little our little grow shot is like 18 by 18, tiny. Uh, we had no experience and we were gonna get all this money from our grow in like a year, right? So it was like short term. Uh, green Rush style um, ambitions, but yeah, so that got us into the cannabis kind of space professionally, or like you know for an income, and then uh, yeah, we were cultivating. It turns out we weren't um, we weren't super passionate or super uh, skilled at cultivation, but um, we were in the dispensaries, and so then you could see okay what do what do consumers need um, where can we stand out in in the cannabis world and what is kind of like ownable um, and, and branding like wasn't really in existence, right? At that time, all the flour was deli style. Um, and we were doing clones. So we were we were not even doing flour because we couldn't grow great flour, but we could cut little plants off of other plants <laughs> and get them to grow roots. Um, so we ended up doing the the cloning side of the business and that was a great way to stand out um, at the time because there there just weren't very many other people doing clones. Um, but that was hard to own, right? Like what is the brand name of a plant that you buy? I like there, it's just very hard to attach your name to that. Um, and very hard to make improvements in that regard. Um, and edibles just didn't have anything to offer that, that Scott and I would consume ourselves that we would share with our family or with our friends. It was very experimental edibles back then, right? Like just the Avery label, uh triple X, 10X, like all these scary kind of things that don't lend themselves to a, a predictable or like um favorable edible experience. So that's the, that's the, that's the long and short of it.
2: So when was the transformation of like the idea went in? You said, okay, we're not the clones is one concept. We're going to move into the brand. Was it like an experimental period of time? Or was it one where like you got started, you saw the fit right away and you were like, we got something here.
0: Yeah. So it was, no, it wasn't a right away. Um, definitely wasn't a right away. So we thought, okay, if we can't, you know, clones, we kind of thought maybe we would do retail. So a Starbucks kind of experience, like maybe that would be the right fit for us to really sort of shape the, shape the consumer experience and make it uh, more normalized for the cannabis consumer, more like a Starbucks or a Whole Foods, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then, uh, no, Scott was looking for real estate, um, for the dispensary and, and walked into a chocolate shop in Berkeley and was like, you know, light bulb moment. Oh, we'll do edibles. And um <laughs> he came home, he came home to me and was like, we're gonna do edibles. And I was like, oh my God, no, please no. I was not, I was not pro edibles. I my mind instantly went to like the worst case scenario. And so he thankfully didn't listen to me, just kind of kept on going um with the idea. And uh and yeah, that's when okay edibles after, you know, after hearing the the vision was, you know, let's make them taste better. Let's make them look better. Let's make them work better. Let's test them, right? Make sure that they deliver a repeatable experience that's measurable every single time. And we're not going to make these you know, hashy bong water brownies, like we're gonna make something delicious with the best, highest quality chocolate we can find. And we're going to create a brand um that that does improve that consumer experience um in the way that uh that it really desperately needed at the time. So
1: in those early days, you guys decide to make edibles and the first batch that you make is it is it a chocolate. And do you guys take that to market or you're like, hey, we just consume this with our friends? Kind of walk us through kind of the development of your first product that that hit the shelves.
0: Yep. Yep. So it took about, um, it took us about 10 months to get from, um, from light bulb moment to um, selling our first chocolate bar. And so yeah, it started with a few like foundational things that we sort of picked up along the way. So Definitely testing, like testing labs were um, just being born at that time. Steep Hill was one of the very first labs to come on board, like in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, um, and so you could you could actually test for THC content. So like that had to happen. Kiva would not have existed if there was no way to test. So that had to happen. Then we contacted a branding or a um, graphic design uh, duo that we knew from our photography world, and they were fresh out of school, and so we. Went went to them, Hey, can you guys help us create a logo and a package? And they were like, Oh, no, no, you need a brand. Like a brand is going to like speak to the consumer. A brand is going to stand for something. And so we went through this whole branding exercise, like what would Kiva, what would Kiva stand for? And we came up with words that we still use today. Like it would be, um, stand for professionalism, information forward, right? It would put the most relevant info Right there on the package for the consumer to see. It would be natural and holistic. Um, things like that that still are very true about the Kiva brand, um, today. And so, yeah, those, those two things coming together really set us on a, um, a trajectory where we could separate from the other products and other types of, um, cannabis items available on the shelves at that time. And so, yeah, that took, that took us, yeah, 10 months. We, um, another kind of big, big part of it was choosing the right chocolate. Uh, choosing the right kind of medium. I should even back up there. It wasn't going to be something baked because it had to be ultra consistent. And so in our research and finding what that right medium would be, it couldn't be a brownie or a cookie because there just was no way to make each brownie and each cookie exactly the same size so that you could break off a piece and it would be the same concentration, right? Homogeneity, getting the THC dispersed throughout the whole uh, medium, just that wasn't going to work right. Um, And plus equipment right baking um in your home kitchen <laughs> or eventually you know like in a facility you need like a big fume hood and a giant oven and all that stuff and chocolate is very scalable and quite frankly easy to work with right it was pretty pretty safe medium long shelf life so a lot of those kind of components sort of started to fall into place and then finally i think the biggest one cannabis and chocolate are such a great match and Chocolate in particular, like just who doesn't love chocolate, right? So when you're trying to... Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my God. That's... Brian, I got to go. I'll talk to you later.
2: <laughs> but I love gummies. That's my that's my drug of choice.
0: Okay. Fair. Um, So 99.99% of the population loves chocolate. And uh, like, what better way to welcome consumers into cannabis edibles than with something very friendly and approachable that they're used to consuming. So yeah, that's a little bit more about how we then landed on the chocolate bar.
2: I think that's so important because I I think sometimes people forget that you you have an idea and a concept and you push forward and realize that this fit isn't good. You iterate, you continue moving forward. But the important there is you're continually learning and evolving. And I think sometimes people forget and and they jump into this industry and they expect kind of instant results because everyone's chasing that. And it is far from that. It is extremely challenging. So kind of continuing on that chocolate path. Take us through the stacking of the brands. Introduce some of the brands that is under the umbrella today, and kind of share the the lineage of who came first and then where we are
0: today. Yeah, totally. So I love the evolution of the different brands that we've come out with in the different formats. So, yep, yeah, Kiva Bar, and then um, we had that for probably two or three years until we then launched the terabytes. And along with the terabytes, we also launched our Kiva minis, which were like a single square. That's what people... So we're getting feedback from consumers like, oh, can you give us a, um, a little piece? And they would like, you know, do this little pinchy motion with their hands. We want just one small, you know, one small square was their solution. We're like, okay, cool. So we came out with a small square. But Kind of paying attention to those little, those little hand motions. It was like, oh, I think what people really want is better dosability. Like they want to get exactly the amount that they're looking for. So we also ended up doing some product development on the chocolate covered espresso beans. And that was like, you know, that took, we had to like go out to Ohio and get trained on how to, how to pan is the process of, of making a chocolate coated, um, bean. And so we like, you know, we got trained by the panning guru and we came home and we brought that expertise back to California and practice, practiced um, until we finally had something that was like, you know, uh, uh, true to the intent of the product and launched both of those items at relatively the same time. Terabytes did way better than the minis. Um, for sure. Like the minis never really, nothing ever came of it. And I love that kind of story because I think Getting feedback from consumers is really important. Um, but you also have to read between the lines and kind of like predict what they're actually asking you for. Um, so terabytes kind of leaned into this dosability, convenience, and uh and pieces. And uh that started Kiva's journey down microdosing and pieces next item that came out was the blueberries so same in line with um with the espresso beans but uh the blueberry version so coated in milk chocolate and oh my gosh the blueberries were a crowd pleaser like it's like cult following <laughs> yeah people will go crazy over the blueberries so that really gave us a ton of lift and a bit of a like reputation boost Next that came out, we're like, all right, let's lean real heavy into micro dosing. This is like 2015, 2016. Let's give people like the ultimate, ultimate ability to dial down their dose. So we gave came out with the Petriments at two and a half milligrams of THC. And this is when pre-regulation, right? There's no California, there's no regulation Uh, whatsoever. You're still making these wherever, you know, like there's, there's no health inspector coming to your facility. Like it's still wild west. Um, And the most popular products on the market at this time are the 500 and 1000 milligram um, (laughs) items that you could find. So it was a real like double down on microdosing. So fast forward a couple years, we get our regulations. Now it's 2018 and we launch our... At the end of the year, we launch our Camino Gummy. And gummies were already a thing. Like we had been first to market or very, very close to first to market with all of our other product lines so far. So we were kind of like the the category leader by a time perspective. But now with Gummy and Camino, there was Plus, there was a couple other ones um, already on the market. And so we had to really like fight our way to the top and make Camino something a bit different. So we leaned really hard into the brand and um, the brand's promise, which would be um, terpenes and tailoring one's effect using terpenes. So um, yeah, oh man. But having Camino come out at the end of 2018, like... Oh what a what a what a wave of relief because it was such a awfully hard year with regulations rolling out. It was like it was just so difficult. So Camino was great. And then uh, most recently, we've launched um, our strain-specific live resin gummies and fruit chews in Lost Farm. And Lost Farm does the opposite that our petriments or our microdosing um, did. It, it does not appeal to the brand new um, Uh, consumer in their infancy, this leans over to the cannasaur, someone who cares passionately about strains, who's like on this adventure of cannabis with you. Um, and is also like always looking for the next best, um, strain and flavor combination, something super fun and, and really kind of, um, immersive. And so, uh, yeah, that's the, that's the evolution.
2: I love it. And I, I really enjoy the, the doubling down on the 2.5 when everyone else is going the other direction. Because I think that's a conviction, in understanding that what is happening as of today is not necessarily what is best for all the consumers that are that are operating. And because a, a newer consumer is likely not interested in that, right? They they want something that they can trust, that they can feel like is uh, repeatable, but also not one that's going to give them the scary. So is the different lineage of the different marketing brains is that to be that if Kellen and I both show up and we're both interested in, let's say, edibles but I'm only interested in Camino and, and Kellen's a non-animal person. And I go, hey, like these guys are also Kiva. Is that kind of the, the connection? Is that different characteristics, but all trusted under the umbrella?
0: Yep, exactly. So I think initially our first um, foray into doing a, a secondary brand like Tara was our first foray into that. Um, we wanted to appeal to a different consumer. So we had the Kiva bar. It felt very professional and very like clinical, And we got some feedback that it was very female, like friendly, like it was very much positioned to women. And so we're like, all right, let's go the other direction and let's try to come up with something that's a little more bold, a little more masculine. And so we went with the Terra pack that's kind of that like chew, almost like a chew container, something you put in your pocket. So we tried to go kind of the other direction. Well, it ended up opening up this world to us of like different strokes for different folks, right? So it would be very hard to put a micro-dosed mint under the same communication style as your strain-specific live resin connoisseur product. And so if we have a new concept for a new consumer, then we put that in a different brand. If it is a different brand promise and a different value proposition to the consumer, then we split that off and we, we put it in a different... It's a different person, right? It's a different personality, and so yeah that um, that strategy has uh, has been brought up and has been questioned a lot over our company's history because it is a hassle, right? It's uh, I was on a call this morning um, for a new brand that we're trying out. Um, you want to
2: share like, it? Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I, that's as much as I could tell you. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, we're trying to create yet another baby. Right. And it's like another set of communications and values and all this stuff. So it is, it is time consuming. Um, but I think it really does serve the consumer best. Like it, it's it's the best way to communicate to your consumer without serving them up too much information or watering down what you've created um, along the way. So it's a,
1: a lot of brands, right? And all these brands require cannabis, right? and extract to, to manufacture them. And so during this journey, do you guys still cultivate? Uh, I know you started with clones. At what point did you decide to kind of like leave that business on the side? Is that still a thing? Can you kind of talk us through the actual uh, supply kind of structure of your organization if that makes sense
0: yeah great question so um it has varied over the years uh but it was a great day when we got to um look, you know flip the breaker switch off on our <laughs> <laughs> <cultivation>. <laughs> in the garage or in the yeah in the shed at that Did time you do it with some champagne Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> <With an
1: edible. laughs> oh yeah, with an animal. There we go.
0: <laughs> yeah, we we like didn't go back in there for probably like two years. I swear it was like let's put that lifetime behind us and move forward. But um, yeah. So no, we've never returned to cultivation. We have always preferred to source our extracts from from the experts. Like we're uh, we know what we're good at, which is edibles, um, and we have tried as a company very hard to stay in our lane, which is really hard. Like it is very challenging in the cannabis industry. But you know, we don't have uh, any inhalables or you know any um, any tinctures or anything like that. We've just like okay, let's let's keep our eye on the edibles and and stay there. So supply for us. Um, you know, we are sourcing a bunch of different extractions. So, like our our chocolate is cold water hash, a strain specific live resin for Lost Farm um, distillate, and natural terpenes for Camino. So um, it just depends on what the product is. But yeah, supply chain has totally evolved over the years. Like distillate used to be like a thousand times (laughs) more expensive than it is today. Like today you could practically like people are giving it away sometimes it seems like so and the the supply chain thankfully has begun to stabilize a bit um you know thankfully for our consumers and for our cultivators and just the all of the supply chain actors along the way like it has begun to stabilize a little bit in the past like 6 months to a year but yeah it's a beast managing all of that we have a huge procurement um, supply chain team that You know, they spend their days like deciding what we're going to make and when, and then backing into that, ordering all of the supplies, not just the THC component, but you know, the packaging and the labels and everything else that goes into it.
2: Does it vary state by state, meaning you need to have a a different supplier per state? Because you're just kind of layering on the challenges. And I'd like you to kind of go into some of the states you're in and then kind of speak on how that works.
0: Yeah, the, the out-of-state expansion is a beast. Yeah, it's a beast because it is different state by state. When we launched our first uh, state outside of California was Arizona in 2014. So we have you know almost 10 years under our belt now of out-of-state expansion, and we've learned a lot. We've learned all the things um, that do not work. We're still learning things that don't work, but um, we're uh, we're sharpening our pencils. And our team is amazing. Um, but yeah, we've really um, we've really leaned into how do we make it easy um, and successful to uh, be in another state. Easy is, you know, that's a <laughs> relative. Yeah. <laughs> that's a goal for the future far off. But um yeah, our team here in California, or I should say our, our kind of headquarters um team, they help our out of state partners with sourcing. So um we have someone on our team that specifically sources for lost farm in other states. So right, because that's the main component for a lost farm and also that you can't, um, you can't ship or, or move across state lines. There's no central ordering for that. Like there is for sugar or chocolate or cartons, you know, stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, like, and, and packaging is another big one where, uh, there are just endless variations, um, of packaging. And so we've over the years kind of gotten a little, a little smarter. Um, our chocolate bar, for example, now is, um, is a standard box. And then all of the kind of um, special communication or variable communication goes on an over-label. And it was designed specifically like that. So it doesn't feel like an over-label, but um, it still has that premium look and feel. uh, But it's way more manageable um, from a supply chain perspective. Like these
2: are the type of challenges that I think consumers just completely just aren't aren't aware of. And and like they are so layered because a Kiva product in one state doesn't look like a key product in another state, not based on Kiva, but based on how the, the regs are made. So when you're entering those states, do you sit there with a board and go, okay, we can go state one, two, or three, and then go regulations are tough on this one, supply chain is bad in this one, we think our products will hit in this one. Is it kind of like a, a numbers game where you just score at the end? How does that work?
0: Oh man, yeah, it's there's so many factors to um, to consider. So I'll give you an example, like okay, so Florida without it's like wholesale, it doesn't have a wholesale market. And then it's very vertically integrated. So if you want to play in Florida, you have to grow, manufacture and sell all inside your own ecosystem, right? So if you grow too much, well, too bad, you have to sell inside your own store. If you don't have enough, well, too bad, you're out of stock. If you make, you know, bad batch of edibles, it's like, you have to do absolutely everything start to finish. And there's only, I don't know, a handful of different license holders out there. So yeah, Florida, you're like, well, who do you want to get married to in Florida? You know, like from a brand's perspective, we have to pick one of those operators and, you know, they have to pick us back, right? <laughs> and so like, that is a, that's been a tough market to break into hoping to get there by the end of the year, but that one's super hard. So that's a, like a regulation hurdle to overcome. Then, um, back up to like the early days, Colorado, they had that residency requirement that held everybody out for i think it was like 2 years so you couldn't you couldn't get in there you could do all these like you know tricky things and try to weasel your way through but ultimately like that kept um, out-of-state competitors out of that market for quite some time. So that was regulatory also. A state early days like Nevada, uh, all indoor cultivation, it took them years to accumulate enough material, THC biomass, that they would want to then put it into an edible, right? Like you can sell it in a vape, you can sell it in flower a bit easier or more quickly than you can to spend the time to manufacture that into an edible, especially one that maybe uses cold water hash, which isn't the most efficient way of capturing THC. And in California, we forget, like there's just supply everywhere, right? Like the cannabis grows on trees here. So um, we have such a huge supply. And so when you go to another state, like you got to take that into consideration. So yeah, there's a million considerations, so many details that make a state viable
2: or not. The one that I hadn't thought of until now is like when a new state comes online, there might be limitations internally from a supply chain perspective, which might push the pricing of some of the the materials to go up, which then means your margins are, are not what you had originally assumed because those prices have got to be pretty fluid, especially early on. That has to lead to unknowns, challenges, and then you reconsidering six months down the road, be like, hey, like these product lines are not hitting the way we thought.
0: Yep. Yep. I mean, like you can imagine launching a, um, launching a state with a chocolate bar or a gummy, and it's going to be $42 at retail. You're like, Oh God. When they're like, you know, 18 to 20, 18 to 25 in California, it's just like, Oh my God, who's going to spend 45, dollars on an edible in another state. And that is uh, so unfortunately what then spurs um, the unregulated market to be successful, right? Because you take New York, like our products appear there, how they get there, who knows, but they're there and they're priced, you know, sometimes relatively affordably. So you've got to compete with the out-of-state, the unregulated market, um, counterfeit market, like it... Pricing is a huge, is a huge beast and um, is, yeah, really a a difficult nut to crack and has some real ramifications if you don't get it right.
1: Which I mean, honestly, you, you guys, your team deserves even more applaud for not jumping into the cultivation section because a lot of people's mindset is, well, I'll just control that piece of the supply chain. So I can manage the pricing on my margins for my finished goods, right? Um, So I think that's probably one of the reasons you guys have been so successful. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, I think um, for an edible, we have a lot more levers to pull when it comes to price. And we have so many more values, um, value propositions to offer to the consumer. So we have a bit more insulation. Um, if you're just selling flour or just selling vape, you don't have as much. I don't like to say hide behind because that sounds you know nefarious. But um, we, we just have as edibles, we've got lots of other ingredients that we can add, uh, flavors that we can add. We have so much more like storytelling capabilities and branding opportunities that flour and vape, like they just don't, they don't have. So yeah, I think there's just a bit more forgiveness uh, when it comes to pricing with edibles than there is in other categories.
2: Our conversations with, let's say, the East Coast uh, states that are coming online, are they, let's say, offensively like encouraging Kiva to come there and say, hey, we've got resources to help you do this? based on the brand and kind of the visibility and the understanding of the consistency. Is it more offensive base or is it more your team kind of meeting them 50-50? How does that relationship work?
0: You know it's it totally both I would say both. Yeah. We um we get hit up by uh we get hit up by states. We are actively seeking states and partnerships. Um yeah, the partner, the partner picking, the state picking um, process. It definitely takes a long time to vet, vet the state and its regulations, vet the partner, their capabilities, and their kind of their interests. That's a, that's a really big part of it is like making sure that your interests align and you don't have conflicts of interest um, along the way that will on either side of the table that will kind of prevent you both from uh, reaching your goals or um, or kind of executing on your vision. But yeah, um, we definitely get hit up by like by some states, you know, we might get hit up by like a, a small state and then have to go, okay, is this is this state in our like, you know two year plan or our 10 year plan because it takes just as much energy to launch New York or New Jersey as it does like you know Hawaii so you got to just kind of think about where where um where your efforts are are best used
2: yeah the partnership is so important and i want you to bring up the the two way partnership with garden society when i first read about it, i thought that was a phenomenal one one that made a ton of sense and and makes a ton of sense so can you just share what that is and and why you decided it, it was worthwhile
0: Yep. So we recently um, entered a relationship with Garden Society. Um, They are doing our manufacturing in um, New Jersey, and we are doing their distribution in California. And it's unique because Garden Society, first and foremost, is a brand, which is really cool. Like to see two brands coming together um, is a little bit of a different dynamic than like an MSO and a brand or uh, any other kind of combination. So, because we both kind of get it from a brand perspective, we have we're very much our interests are very much aligned in that regard. And then, so that's like where who we are both at our core are brands. Then they are amazing at manufacturing, and that's the area that they want to lean into. And then we do great distribution in California. And so by coming together, we can kind of offer each other these these like side services that both. Are very key to growing our businesses in these in each of these states. So, um, and then Garden Society, Erin and her team, like Erin Gore, is amazing and and they uh, woman owned and woman founded and woman run and like just beautiful products and love the brand. They've been around for a long time in California. So there's just like a good ethos and some good like feel good uh, energy there that works really well.
2: Brands supporting other brands,
0: yeah. Right? Go figure.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so for our East Coast listeners, what makes Kiva different and why should consumers who are new trust Kiva to overcome some of their hesitancies with taking edibles for the first time since college?
0: Oh, amazing. Yes. Okay. So um, I think what we have done as Kiva really well is make consuming edibles not scary like at our core, we've taken an experience that can be unpredictable, unreliable, and we've like, we've boiled it down to something that is predictable and not scary, approachable, easy, easy to do and and very pleasant um, and measurable. So yeah, I would say um, for your new consumers of Kiva, like, Taste and quality is something that we take very seriously and we lean into really hard. So you're always going to get beautiful flavors and a great product quality, attention to detail in that regard. You're going to want to eat way more than just one or two. But if you're new, be careful, right? Start small. You can always eat more. That's the uh, <laughs> that's the public service announcement. And then new, right? We love to come out with new stuff to keep people engaged, to uh, keep things fresh and fun. Like we're human beings. We love new stuff and trying different things. And so um, innovation is something that uh, Kiva takes really seriously. And then also too, I think people are really, consumers are really, just they want to support a company that does good. And so we try really hard to keep like company culture, the way we treat our employees, um, the way we treat our vendors, our retailers. Like we just try to conduct ourselves um, as professionally as we can, and do kind of do right by the world. Being a business, not just in cannabis, but you know, being a business in general, um, we want to be a, a company and and people that our consumers feel like they can support.
2: Speaking on innovation, was there any? Ever any product lines that you thought yourself in your gut like this is actually going to crush and then it hit the market and absolutely flopped?
0: So <laughs> not an absolute flop. We we had an absolute flop. I had, nothing is jumping to my mind, but boy, how we tried a lot. We've we've tried so we've tried so many different things, and there are so many lessons learned. But I will say like back to that product line evolution and Petra. Like I love Petra. Petra is my favorite. Like that is the, I think that's like the best, most like user-friendly item we've ever used and, or ever uh, created. And it has never popped off. I think it's probably like 10 years too soon. I used to say like two years. And I was like, oh, maybe <laughs> it's five years. now I'm like, it's gotta be like 10 years too early <laughs> because it's made for the like casual, light-use consumer, well, that person's only in the stores, if they are ever even in the stores, like once a quarter. And then, you know, they eat one a week instead of one an hour. So like that person, it's just like, oh, I want Petra to be so successful because it is a great product. It's just the person buying cannabis right now isn't in the store. So Petra is like the little engine that could. It keeps on trucking and it does have a following, but um, it has so much more potential than what it's actually done for us.
1: How much do you notice a difference state by state when you launch your your different products in every different state? Is it like some states love chocolate, some states love gummies? Like How does that whole dynamic work?
0: Yep. So Michigan actually buys more Petra than California does. So... <laughs> <laughs> So Michigan's a big mid-state, I guess. So you're a Michigan fan, eh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to move there and get my Um, Yeah, so it just, you know, it, it depends. Gummy still remains like, you know, uh, the top of the pyramid in terms of popularity. So consumers... I kind of overall are going with, uh, with gummy, but yeah, Michigan again is a little more chocolate leaning, but it's sort of like you get, you get out what you put in. So if we innovate really heavily on gummy, like on Camino and Lost Farm, then, you know, you see more traction and you see more attention, more sales on those products. But if you let chocolate just kind of coast. Then you know the results kind of just coast. So it's still sort of hard to it's it's hard to say oh yeah this state is all gummy or all chocolate because we sort of put attention where we think it's going to be best, uh, but like the, where the results are going to come out from. So and that has been gummy lately. So um, yeah, all that to say, I think it really just depends on the market and the consumer, and then what we're giving our focus to.
1: What's the easiest one to manufacture?
0: Ooh, our ops team is, I'm like, ooh, what yeah, would
1: they do? They're, all, they're all eagerly <laughs> listening. They're yeah. all hard. Yeah. I love everyone.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love all my children, but... Everyone has a favorite. <laughs> the hardest one. Um, So I think Petra probably is the easiest once you get the like room conditions and the environment done because that product's made on a pill press and the pill press can can shoot out like, you know... A million a minute, it just that thing hums. So once you get that all dialed in and get it just right and you buy that that piece of equipment, then it, you know, you can fire those off. Um, so that's probably the easiest. Then the fruit chews by and large are the hardest. And uh yeah, the equipment is expensive and like those are love, that product because it's hard to make, right? So it's hard to copy. That's great. But hate that product because when you want to take it out of state it's hard to make, (laughs) the equipment's expensive. So it makes like scaling that and moving that across the country, not easy. But we don't like doing things because they're easy. We like doing things because they're, you know, uh, valuable to the consumer and people are going to fall in love with them. So if you kind of keep that mantra uh, in the back of your mind, then Lost Farm is like the perfect product.
2: Yeah, I I think those areas are so important. And just to kind of go back to the Petra concept, with those 2.5s, they are the perfect kind of like try this, you won't get too high type of product. And and I've given out countless times. And and people's first thought was, are you sure? Do I need to break in half? And with 100% certainty, I say, just take it. I Like I assure you. And after I've seen it with maybe 5 or 10 people now, the smile goes on because it's a very different experience than they thought about. And they think to myself, they're like, hey, this is not what I had thought it would be like. And I was like, yeah, whatever you took in college was likely not 2.5.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was probably 250. <laughs> right. Hence <That's> the problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that smile. When you see that smile spread across somebody's face. Oh, and I also like to say it's like a little shoulders, like the weight off your shoulders. Mm, that is, that's like, that's what motivates me. That's what gets me like going every day is that that moment.
2: Those consumers right now likely, A, don't go to dispensaries, B, likely don't consume at all, but C, are likely going to convert from another category inside, which will just make the category alone accelerate because I'm with you. If I had to bet long-term, the low dose is the one that I think will be that crazy hockey stick.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And like, I mean, it's so true. How do you get a cannabis product? So you got to like Google dispensary, you got to like, hop in the car, drive down there. There's a security guard standing out front with like, you know, a big vest and it's like kind of intimidating. You're like, is this where I? You can't bring your kids in. So you got to like, what do you got to get a babysitter so you can go to the dispensary? It's just like, it's way too hard. <laughs> Not idea.
2: Not idea. Were you ever close to closing up shop? And if so, what broke to alter your path?
0: Ooh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> early days. Oh God. Early days. It was so tumultuous early days. So, um, yeah, right after lunch, like, um, uh, maybe about nine or 10 months in, so like mid like September, October, 2011, um, <clears throat> we were, uh, distributing, you know, this is out of the back of your Prius, right. Or your backpack, whatever. It was very um, low key. And so um, we could distribute all over the Bay area and um, up to Sacramento. We had probably like 60 stores in Sacramento. And then I think it was, uh, it wasn't state. I think it was like DEA officials came in and shut down like a bunch of the Sacramento stores, like just, by storm started going in like one by one and shutting everybody down. And it was really scary. And so um we brought our team together. We were like, you know, there's probably like 10 people outworked at Kiva, packagers and um people making the chocolate. And uh we were like, all right, guys, you know, we're really sorry. This is this is the end. Like we're probably not gonna be here. We're probably gonna get raided. So like, you know, this is the end. And it was very somber. And it was like on a Tuesday afternoon. Next day we're like going into work, like well Nobody came in and raided the facility. So I guess we'll make some more chocolate bars. And just like, we kind of just kept going. And um, that was the, like, that was, it was, we were so naive at the time to how the industry worked that we really thought like one raid or a a handful of raids in a town and a a jurisdiction meant that everybody, like the industry was over. Um, But that's definitely a lesson. Like the cannabis industry, like perseveres, um, like Kiva perseveres like if there is a challenge it's like well you could you could close your doors but you know like t- the sun's gonna come up tomorrow and you still gotta like get up and you know feed yourself and feed make, make breakfast in the morning so like you have to continue some way somehow and so uh yeah, that, that was the closest we ever came. And then every raid of other we never were raided, thank God, but every, every other business after that was just like, you know, taking note. What did they do? What happened? And uh making sure you were privy to
2: to the situation. Dream smoking or consuming session, three people dead or alive.
0: Oh, okay. So <laughs> I'm gonna borrow this from somebody else that I heard recently say this, Obama. Like come on right? How amazing would that be to um, to consume with Obama either of the all of the Obamas would be great. Oh the other one would be haters. Okay, so people who don't consume cannabis, I feel like, or are anti-cannabis, I should say, wouldn't it be great to consume with someone who's like, I hate cannabis and you'd be like, all right, let's just sit down. We're going to smoke a joint. We're going to have a mint and we're just going to see what it's like, right? It would. I think it would really, really sway public opinion and public policy and be, um, be a really kind of awakening moment um, for so many people. And then lastly, I would say uh, I would love to smoke a joint with my dad. Um, we smoke joints together all the time. So it's not like <laughs> that would be anything uh, out of the norm. But I love hanging out with my dad. You know, my mom, too, is we like, my, like I said in the beginning, my family is very cannabis positive. And so that just like smoking with either of my parents or my sister, is just like a fun chill, relaxing, like we're going to reminisce, we're going to laugh, we're going to, you know, poke fun at each other and you can really like be yourself in that environment. So uh, yeah, those would be my three. (laughs) Love
2: it. If you had to start another cannabis startup outside of your expertise, what would you do?
0: Oh my God, I think I would... Jump off a bridge. (laughs) Oh my God.
1: Cannabis is that easy, eh?
0: (laughs) Start another cannabis business not in my expertise. Oh Lord. Okay. I think it would probably be like, um, okay. It would definitely not be plant touching. It would be like cannabis adjacent. So I think, you know what? I think it would be really fun to pick up where, um, like the uh, women grow, remember that organization yeah, from ago? Yep, to pick up from where they left off. There's also the Dope Women's Network that just kind of kicked off in LA. Um, I, I spoke at there about a couple weeks ago, but I think a, like a women's networking. Um, uh, kind of like career building uh professional development like helping people lean in and and get more involved and kind of bolster their uh their profile and their confidence um would be a really that's the kind of the only thing that sounds like exciting uh <laughs> or or doable. I would never start another can of this business right now I hate to say that but it makes me scared. <laughs> I mean, but like, that's that's the
2: important thing, right? Is that like, if you think about that from the longevity of what you've accomplished, looking back starting again, how daunting that is, but also recognizing like the difficulty of every day, like you said, bringing it and having to overcome obstacles, whether that be internal challenges, supply chain challenges, or just commonly DA rates.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, it's the the challenges of cannabis are crazy. Like, you just you're, you've got two hands tied behind your back when you're trying to to solve problems and and run a business and be successful in the industry. So, I always love to give a shout out to the Kiva team. Like, from top to bottom, people who are new, people who have been here for a long time, like all levels, all expertise's at the company. Like, there it is really challenging. And we have an awesome um, team. They're just admirable and an incredibly talented group of people. So love to give that team um, a good
2: shout out. When you got started in the cannabis journey, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong?
0: Ooh. <laughs> what did I get wrong? You know, I think... Okay, what did we get right? We went in it with like a... a a different perspective. We were going to do it totally differently and a kind of like fake it till you make it attitude. Like we didn't, it's funny because I can tell like, oh, we started in our home kitchen and you know, that story is so cute now. But when you are making it in your home kitchen, you're like, oh, we're very professional and this is all done in a very professional setting, very professional facility. And so you want to be like what you're not <laughs> when you're uh, when you're there. So um, yeah, I think we went in very like, okay, uh, let's try to transform the way things are being done for the better um, in cannabis. So that I think we did right. God, what did we do wrong? What did we do wrong? I remember one day we were like, Packing orders and getting stuff out the door. And um, it was just Scott and I, we were in the garage at this time, not even in the kitchen anymore, um, getting everything, you know, ready to, to make deliveries down in San Jose. I knew it was gonna be a long day, like five or six stops. It's already like two o'clock, already running late. And there were some like chocolate scraps um on the table. And so I just like, you know, used my finger and like boop, 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 pop those in my mouth and um, yeah, that was not the right move. <laughs> 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 on that day. I never did that again. That was like really early on. So yeah, like maybe five or maybe 10 milligrams on a totally empty stomach before like a full day of deliveries was not great. So we made a lot of like silly mistakes, you know, like that a lot and important mistakes. Not all, not all of them were like, you know, fun and funny, but yeah, I think that is, uh, that's like part of the journey. And if you could keep, if you could push forward, even when you're kind of Stoned when you weren't expecting it. Um, <laughs> keep the keep the ship afloat, keep the the train on the track. Um, then, uh, yeah, you're you're doing yourself a service.
2: You could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation. What would it be? Could be life advice.
0: Go with your gut. Follow your heart, which is so hard. It's like, that's like just very hard advice to, or like hard stuff to action on, especially when you're young. Like it's hard to know what is your, like your gut. It's hard to follow your gut because it's, yeah, it, it, you, you want to believe that like somewhere there's a guiding force helping you make the right decisions. But I think deep down, you really do know what's Right and what's wrong, but allowing yourself to follow that um, that advice, I think, is super hard and probably takes a lifetime to um, to master. But yeah, I would uh, that that would be my advice: follow your gut, follow your heart.
2: Beautifully said. All right, prediction time, Christy. As the cannabis industry matures, do you predict a convergence between traditional food brands and cannabis companies, resulting in collaborations or partnerships that redefine the edible markets? If so, how do you envision that landscape unfolding?
0: Oh my goodness. Traditional food and cannabis coming together. I don't really think so. No, I don't really think so. I don't really think that consumers want cannabis in their food. I think those, I think food and cannabis edibles are just two totally different things. You eat food for a completely different reason than you eat cannabis. And so therefore those places are like where you, when, where, why you use or buy those products is two totally different places. So um, plus regulation, I don't think that like cannabis is going to be delivered on the same truck as uh, food like just like beer is not on the same truck as food. I don't think those are going to like, those two channels aren't going to line up so well. And then you take a company like Hershey's. uh, That's when people always ask us about like, are they going to want to go into cannabis? Uh, Because what would the, what would the like um, fallout be? Right. You can like, just what's the, like what's the tweet going to be when Hershey's uh, buys Kiva? Like, the moms of America are going to be like, oh my gosh, is there THC in my chocolate bars? In my Hirsch? Like, what about the Halloween candy, right? You can just see like they're... Like that to me seems like a very big reputational risk for a company like that. Um, so I don't think that is... I don't think that's where it's going to go. I think it's more likely that um, like the vices category is going to uh, be more interested in cannabis, your beer, your wine, your liquor, um, probably not tobacco with edibles. That doesn't really seem like a, the, the same, like, um, the overlap there. So yeah, but good God, who the hell knows? I think it's going to be, I don't don't know. I say it and I go, well, so yeah, I, I think it's less likely.
1: All right. Fair. Kellen. I will slightly agree, but I also think that What I see in the future is maybe not like your bread has cannabis in it, but I think that there will be tools that support, say, chefs that want to do like infused dinners, right? So they'll be able to go to their restaurant store, I think, and buy like an infused olive oil, right? Kind of like a cooking wine kind of situation, if you will, right? It has alcohol, you don't drink it, but kind of the same thing right? So I think that there kind of is going to be like a hybrid approach to it, right? If you look at like Coca-Cola, right? Like Coca-Cola has the Coca-Cola beverage, right? But then they also just partnered with Jack Daniels, right? To provide Coca-Cola and Jack Daniels, which is terrible, by the way, if you've ever had it. I don't recommend it. Thanks um, for <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> but you know, they, they're kind of merging that same thing. So I think that there's probably some sort of hybrid approach. But I agree that I don't think like you'll be able to like walk through your local grocery store and you'll be like, oh, here's my normal Ritz crackers. And then next to it is like, here's my cannabis Ritz crackers or just in a green box instead of a red box. Yeah. Uh, but who knows in this space? What do you think, Brian? So listening to both you guys, I'm going to take the other
2: side. Um, I knew you would. <laughs> here's, I mean, that's, that's my job, unfortunately. So here's how I see it playing out is if I can go to a bar and I can get a beer and I can get a burger, maybe I don't want the beer, put the beer back, I'll take a water. And with my burger, I get infused ketchup which I'm pretty sure Kiva is pretty good at. And that would be perfect for me. And then I've got myself an infused, quote unquote, meal, which delivers on exactly what I want. And that's the kind of intersection that is unique and special that I think kind of delivers that. Because like you said, Christy, like would Hershey's and Kiva be a beautiful partnership? Absolutely. Would the Moms of America be better if they all were taking edibles? Likely, but that's a conversation for like another time. Uh, and probably get me some hate from my own mom uh after this one. But uh, that's how I see that. But you're right. I think it's impossible to forecast like what the future will unhold and how those regulations will be up and you know where the chips lie is kind of the fun part of why we all play the game.
0: Yeah, definitely. And in your situation there, like the bar. So grab a grab a water, grab a grab a cannabis edible or a cocktail with your meat like it's. The experiential side, the on-site consumption side, like, oh my gosh, so much, so many fun things to go on there. I cannot wait until that part of the industry is like humming and we've got the kinks worked out there.
1: Yeah. Do you think federal legalization
0: happens first or more consumption lounges? Oh my God. I think consumption lounges. I think consumption, I don't, (laughs) federal (laughs) (laughs) legalization. Never
2: happening. (laughs) At least not anytime (laughs) soon.
1: (laughs)
0: it's never gonna happen we're gonna we're gonna figure out all the workarounds and the loopholes and oh, like you yeah. know where there's a will there's a way people are going to explore all kinds of different things right. before that uh train leaves the station
2: the, the next question is going to be alien sighting or federally <laughs> right? like,
0: totally like, alien sighting.
2: crazy i'm with you like that is where we are that is where we are <laughs> So Christy, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to buy Kiva products specifically for those here in New York. It might be interested, you know, where could they find you?
0: Yep. So our website's a great place to start, uh, kivaconfections.com. Um, also our Instagram, at Made by Kiva. Um, we're on LinkedIn as well. Um, but yeah, and then dispensaries. We're carried in most dispensaries. Very soon in New York, we will be at most dispensaries. Um, so Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Look for us in the uh, in the legal um, licensed market. Please help us out by, uh, by buying the legal products. That's what uh, the industry
2: really, really needs. Awesome. We'll link it all in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. So much fun. Thanks, guys. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows.
2: I'm Josh Kincaid, capital markets analyst and host of your cannabis business podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on PodCon X. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at The Talking Hedge. You can find me at thetalkinghedgepodcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't. And I'm out.